Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. My name is Chris. Great to be with you. Honored to be able to host this podcast with you. Last week, we had our renewed national gathering, and it was awesome. God did some amazing things. We're really excited about what's coming out of it and looking forward to seeing all of the fruit. If you missed us, we just want to let you know that the next season of the Real Life Theology Podcast in a couple weeks is going to be starting and we're going to be featuring all of our tracks that were at the gathering. So if you missed out, you're going to be able to get all the content. You're going to be able to hear it and take it all in, all the great stuff that we had last week from all of our partners and organizations that came and were a part of our national gathering. So we just invite you to tune into that. Uh, keep listening in, and I will give you the date very soon coming up here of when we're going to start the next season, and we're going to be featuring all of those. So in this episode of our podcast, Chris Barris is working through this series and talking about how there's been a lot of disinformation thrown at us the last couple of years. And in this episode, he's talking about identity and how there's many different things grabbing for our identity, and he brings up some really interesting thoughts and ideas about spiritual warfare and how that plays into the enemy trying to get in and really kind of mess up our identity and lie to us about identity. So let's go ahead and check this out together and listen in to Chris. It is a very bad feeling when you discover you've been duped, right? When, when they say there's a sucker born every minute, and when you discover that you're that sucker. Now, a lot of us like to believe we're not, and that other people can be fooled and lied to, and other people believe things, but not us. But the truth is, we've all been duped at some point, and we've been lied to. Now, we can usually spot the obvious lies, like the main stuff that comes at us. If you said to me that the U.S. government faked the Apollo moon landing, I'm going to be a little skeptical of that. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I think we actually went to the moon. If you said that uh, 9-11 was an inside job done by the U.S. government, I'm like, okay, you've probably watched a lot of documentaries on this. That sounds like a little bit conspiracy theory-ish. I'm going to, I'm going to be pretty skeptical of that. Obvious lies come at us, and we, we can filter them out. The problem is with the not-so-obvious lies and, and how sophisticated that kind of stuff has, has started to come at us. Um, a, a good example would be that, that, I, that I found over the last couple weeks on social media. Um, I want to show you something from Twitter. I don't know if any of you use Twitter, but um, a lot of us do. And uh, on Twitter, there was this tweet that came out a few years ago. Uh, this tweet is about Warwick Dunn, the running back who was for the Atlanta Falcons and my Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Warwick Dunn's a good dude. If you read the tweet, uh, good stuff about him. He grew up in a, a struggling home, and he used his wealth and his celebrity to help a lot of people, which is basically what this tweet is saying. This is not a lie, what you're reading on this tweet. It's, it's legit. It's real. He's a good guy. And you could read that, you'd scroll through that, and you'd like it. In fact, uh, 288,000 people liked it, and it was retweeted 58,000 times. It's like, man, this is so great. Here's, if you want to spot the thing that is a little less than truthful, just in this one tweet, it's in the upper left corner. The account comes from Tyra Jackson, at I am Tyra Jackson. Here's the deal. That's not a real person. That's legit, and I had to look this up. That is a legit Russian uh, farm, uh, a misinformation campaign sort of farm, and the idea is to put good things out there that you will like and retweet, and then you'll start following I am Tyra Jackson, and eventually later on they can start slipping things to you that are dishonest and, and lies, and you're more likely to believe them. I mean, they've studied this. There's a lot of psychology to this kind of stuff. You are more likely to believe them because they've come from a source that had brought you previously had brought you good things and happy things. So there's weird stuff 
that's going on out there. There's an incredible amount of manip- manipulation of information that is coming at us um, almost every day. There's this organized disinformation campaign going on out there. Now, when I say disinformation campaign, I'm talking about an organized effort on the part of a group or a person or uh, a, a government, perhaps, to lie to you and to get you to believe things that aren't true for the purpose of disrupting you, manipulating you, something like that. Now, when I say an organized effort and I say a disinformation campaign, we often immediately go to the idea of a conspiracy theory. We go, okay, you're saying there's a big conspiracy out there that the man, whoever the man is, they are, they are trying to lie to us. And so I, I want to sort of lay some cards out here at, at the front of this series for you and explain a couple things. I'm not going to go all conspiracy theory with you on a whole bunch of things here over the next couple weeks. We're not going to talk about Bigfoot. Sorry. Um, not going to get into that kind of thing. Um, and I want to, and, and I want to tell you what I believe right up front as we go into this. Most of the things that are spoken of as conspiracy theories are not conspiracy theories. Um, and, and I don't mean that it's because they're actually true. Sometimes that is the case. Uh, it, it's not like this hidden truth that's like out there in the open. Sometimes that's the case. But w- w- what I mean is um, a, a lot of times the forces are not conspiring against you. A lot of times there's just a whole lot of incompetence going on um, and that they are not organized trying to ruin your life. They just suck at their jobs. And that's why they're ruining your life. And it's not like a, a group working together. It, 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 there's sort of the famous uh, lines called Hanlon's Razor. It says this, Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Okay? Memorize that. You want to take your phone out, get a picture of that right now? Because that is... So a lot of the things are like, man, they are working against me. No, they just suck at their job. They do, and they're in power over you in some way, and that trickles down, and then your life kind of sucks because of what they're doing. That's, that, that may be, in, in most cases perhaps, that may be the end of it, okay? But I do believe there is a worldwide, long-running disinformation campaign that is at work, and it, it actually is trying to manipulate you, lie to you, and de- destroy you. I-, I think there is a-, a someone who is invested in you not knowing the truth. Now, to-, to-, to explain this, I need to lay this premise out on the table as well. I believe, and you may not believe this when you walk in here today. Some of you believe this, some of you probably don't. Let's talk about it. I believe there is a spiritual world. And it is every bit as real as the physical world. We are used to the physical world, the the properties of gravity and that we experience things through our five senses and and we can measure things with a microscope or a telescope. We're used to that kind of world and we all interact in that every day. I believe there also exists a very real spiritual world of which in in that spiritual world, God lives, God dwells. There is an antagonist in that world, Satan, the devil. Uh, He exists in that world. God has angels that do his work in the spiritual world. Uh, The Satan Satan has minions, I guess, that do his work that aren't little yellow guys, but are demons. Um, And then we also exist in the spiritual world. We are uh, spiritual beings. We have, we we are, um, C.S. Lewis used to say, you are not um, a body with a soul. You are a soul that happens to have a body. And that I believe that. I believe that primarily our identity is we are souls in the spiritual world, but we also have a a manifestation of us. We also exist in the physical 
world. Um, and so I think that is actually the way um, the world is laid out. It's one of the things I really appreciate about that movie. I guess it's Pixar, that movie Soul. Um, one of the things I really appreciate that is that they, they basically articulate that your soul predates the body and that souls exist before the body does and that a, a soul takes on a body to come to earth. And I was like, that's actually a pretty cool truth. Um, so I think there's a spiritual world that is real. Um, and some of you might say, um, some, and, and some people sort of say um, that, 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 that that is a very religious idea to say there's a spiritual world. And some people might say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, which gets a little complicated, right? And I understand that. Uh, cynically, when people say, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, cynically what I think they mean is I don't like to go to church or be involved in anything that has sort of structure or organization or boundaries or rules or anything like that. I'd rather be vaguely spiritual, which involves other things maybe. Um, but charitably, what I think people are saying when they say I'm spiritual, not religious, is they, they, they don't like some of the downsides of religion, but they do appreciate that life has a spiritual dimension to that. And to that, I would very much agree. Life has this spiritual dimension to it. Um, I, I always think of um, what Hamlet said. He said, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There's more going on than we can see here, or as the transformers of my childhood taught me, there's more than meets the eye, right? There's, there's more happening out there than, than what we can see or, or measure sort of scientifically. So with that as a starting point, and, and with that truth as a starting point and that premise, I want to explain to you what I think is the disinformation campaign that we are living in. And it actually has uh, a chief architect of the disinformation campaign is Satan is the devil. Um, and probably in this church and probably in churches in general, we don't talk about this enough, but I believe Satan or the devil is real. Um, he, he actually exists um, and, and he actually desires to destroy us. And this isn't just my opinion. Uh, many who are smarter than me and more learned and, and scholarly than me and more wise than me have said very similar things. In fact, Jesus himself taught this when he was on earth um, if you don't believe Jesus was the Son of God, a lot of people will still believe he was a very wise teacher. And if you even take him just at that and say he was a wise teacher, this very wise teacher taught and believed that Satan is real and that he wants to destroy you. I want to, I want to point to it. Uh, one of the guys who wrote about Jesus is a guy named John. John wrote this in the first century uh, as this biography of the life of Jesus. In, in John chapter 8, it says this. So Jesus is having a conversation uh, with some of the Jews who are following him in Israel in the first century. And it says this, John 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We've talked about that verse before and there's so much packed in there. We could spend a long time just on that. But just at the heart of that, Jesus calls us to abide in his word, to stay with him, stick with him. Our part in our relationship with God is we hold tight. It's like, let me hug you and not let go. And Jesus, that's what he calls us to do. Hold on tight. Be my disciple. You're my follower if you will do that. And, and then he says the, the, the bonus of this or the outcome of that, when you hold to him and, and hold to his words, you will know the truth. You're going to know what is actually true in the world when you hold on to Jesus. And if you do that, if you know the truth, that will, that will set you free. John 8.33, listen to how they respond. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. 
and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? And that's really interesting because these are Jews, right? Israelites in the first century. And, they're, and they go all the way back to Abraham. So they're saying, we are, we are the descendants of Abraham, who at this point is like 2,000 years prior, right? And they're going, well, we're descendants of that guy. And then they say this crazy thing. We've never been slaves of anyone. And Jesus, knowing Israelite history, as they must have, I'm sure at this moment he was like, I mean, the Exodus, Moses, Egypt, you don't, does that ring a bell in your history? Like, never been slaves to anyone. Like, you had this, this has happened all the time for you guys. Like, are you serious? But he kind of ignores that and, and skips right over that. I don't know how, because it's so obvious. And then he says this, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, talking about himself, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, so he's like, I'm not talking about literal slavery, where you, the way we think of it as one person owning another person. You are in chains. You work for me for free, that kind of thing. He says, you're enslaved to something else. You're enslaved to sin. And I think we all, all know what that's like. It's when you do something that there's a part of you, you go, I, I shouldn't do that, and you can't stop doing it. That's, that's a modern form of slavery. You are enslaved to that thing. It, it has you. You think you, you have mastery over it, but it is a master over you. So they, they go back and forth a little bit after that, and they have this discussion about, since they brought up Abraham, they have a discussion about, the Jews are saying kind of like who their father is or who they belong to. They sort of they belong to God and all, and all that. And then a couple of verses later, uh, Jesus responds with this. Listen to verse forty-two. Jesus said to them, "If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word." There's a, there's a contrast here he's, he's drawing between the Heavenly Father, our Father God, and, and what they're claiming to be their Father. And he's like, look, if you really came from the Father, our, our Heavenly Father, you'd know me because I'm his son. There's a connection here. Um, uh, and, and then um, listen to what he tells them that they're actually doing. Verse 44, you are, a, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a, that's how Satan is described, okay? He was a murderer from the beginning, Cain and Abel, right? And has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus says, this is reality. This is what is actually going on. You guys are all caught up, and really, who you're serving at the end of the day, to this group he's talking to, you're serving your, your, your real father, who's Satan. You're, you're caught up in his web, and here's who Satan is. He's a murderer, and he's a liar. When he, when he lies, it says he speaks out of his own character. Other translations say he is speaking his native tongue. When, when Satan lies to us, this, that's just how he speaks. That's just who he is. He's the author of that. So when I say there is a massive disinformation campaign going on, it traces back to that. It goes back to really the beginning of time that Satan has been doing this 
in order to murder and destroy all of us. All of us who are living in this world are living under that disinformation campaign. This is what Jesus believed, that Satan is behind these things, that he is corrupting the world, that he is corrupting people's hearts, that he is whispering lies to people. Um, that Satan does that. Uh, Christians have always believed this throughout history, that, and, and we've taught it in different ways. We've said, look, our struggles, our problems are not just physical struggles and problems. Uh, our, our relationship tension is not because of some neurochemicals that I have and chemicals that you have. They're not working well. Our relationship tension and our problems are spiritual problems. There's something else going on here. And so, yes, there is demonic things at work, potentially in family relationships or in the, in the streets and in, in, in the cities and in homes. Like there is demonic influence and there's angelic influence. There's good things going on as well. There's this massive struggle going on around us. But we are all living under this organized disinformation campaign. Um, our struggles are not just against flesh and blood. There are dark forces, demonic forces, the devil. So when you struggle with a friend, when you have a disagreement with your classmate, when you and your boyfriend are not getting along, when you and your spouse are at each other, um, something else is going on. Now, I don't think in every situation that Satan directly uh, is influencing you uh, in every moment. So if you fought with your spouse on the way to church this morning, it's not because Satan climbed into your van. Um, it could be because you're an idiot and you said something really dumb. Possibly. I'll put that out as an option. And you should apologize later if you haven't already. Uh, and I've been there. Uh, but, but, I, but I don't think that Satan is actually necessarily at work in your minivan. Um, I, I think what is possible is there's demonic. He has demons that do his work. And, I, and there might be something of that at work there as well. Um, Certainly, if you have um, toddlers, you understand de- demonic activity. Uh, you, you have seen, <laughs> I mean, y- you know, seriously, you have toddlers and you see like the exorcist and you're like, that doesn't scare me. <laughs> Whatever. I know that girl spun her head around. My kid pooped all the way up his, his back. It's impressive. Um, but there, there are demonic things going on in the world and there's, a, there's, a, there's spiritual forces. This is, this is why we pray. This is why we fast. This is why um, we, we read and we dial into this stuff because all of our struggles are not just physical flesh and blood struggles. There's other things going on here and we need to dial into them and be aware. So let me, uh, what I want to do in this series is really talk about four lies that, that Satan does. And all of that was intro to today's lie and I'll, I'll have to deal with it quickly because I had to do all the other stuff first. But um, there, there's a lie that Satan tells us, and I think this is one of the most prevalent in our culture today, um, maybe the number one issue facing uh, people in, in, in the West, I will say, in, in the world today. Um, and and this, there's a lot of deep roots to this. Um, I, I think Satan goes to work on society as a whole and, and, and shifts some things, and I think this is one of them. So this is a lie about identity, and I can maybe most clearly show you this from an ad for Instagram that I saw um, a couple months ago, and it stopped me in my tracks when I saw it. I was like, oh, wow, that's so blatant. This is it. It's kind of small. I'll read it to you. Uh, It says, Instagram, make yourself in your own image. Explore who you can be with reels. Hashtag yours to make. I saw that, 
And I was like, oh, dear God, that's, that's Genesis. That's, that's biblical, like what that is saying. Make yourself in your own image. I don't know if the ad writer was like a tool of Satan when they wrote that, like felt the power going through the keyboard, or if they just thought it sounded cool. <laughs> Maybe it just sounded cool. I don't know. But that language is significant. And if you've read Genesis, it should kick off some alarm bells to you. And if you haven't, let me, let me read it to you. When God creates humanity, Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, this is key, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male, female, he created them. What, what do we learn there? Well, a couple things, and these are core to who we are. We are creatures, which means we are created, which means we have a creator. All men are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. We've, we, we said this in our constitution, right? In our founding documents, we believe these sorts of things. We, we are uh, created beings, and it says male and female are created. There's this binary setup where there's male and female. This is true all over creation. You can see it everywhere. Animals and, and, and people, like you, you see, okay, there's a male and female. There's this complementary thing there where these two things sort of fit together. This is obvious. And it says we are created in God's image, which means there is a divine stamp on all of us, which is, which is huge. There's, his spirit has been breathed into our lungs. There, we have a soul, and, and there's huge implications for this. We are creating God's image. We, we, we are, in some ways, then we emulate his character qualities. And, and this is why humanity is so different than animals, because it doesn't say the animals are creating God's image. It says people are. And think how different we are from all animals. Um, think about how, how are we, we long for transcendence. And we ask the deep questions of life and the way we experience joy and sorrow. So different than the animal kingdom that we go around questioning our existence and having existential angst. Why are we like this? Because there's something deeper going on with people than with the rest of the animal kingdom. And I would say it's because we are created in God's image. We have the stamp of the divine in us. So if the goal of Satan is to lie to you and to destroy you, then he would want you to ignore that basic reality about who you are. And if he was going to write an ad campaign, he would say, you can make yourself in your own image. You can, you can do this. Don't worry about God. I mean, that's basically what he says in the next couple chapters to Eve when he, when he tempts her. You, you can be your own God. You can make yourself in your own image. You can have authority and dominion. And we kind of believe that now. We believe that we are in some ways in charge of us. We are the masters of our own fates. We're the captains of our own souls. We are in charge of our lives. We are made in our own image, and we can continue to do that, and it just gets better and better as you continually make yourself into whatever and whoever you want to be. Problems with that, though, I don't think that's working, that system. I don't know if you've noticed, but people are awfully anxious with the system that we have in place, and there's a lot of depression out there, and I think a lot of it is related to this. It's related to very core things about who we say we are and who gets to say who we are. 
I see a lot of people out there who are working very hard to make themselves into their own image, as the ad for Instagram says. And when they get there, they're not satisfied with that. You have to like it. They keep putting it out there so that you will validate it. Why? Because we can't validate ourselves. We're just not good at it, and we're insecure. So I go, I'm going to make myself into this image, and I'm going to put it out there, and you better like it, and I need you to validate it, and I need you to thumbs up and put the little heart on it and all of those things. I I need that constant approval because we are... um, so We cannot validate ourselves, and we are so insecure. We look to other people to say who we are. And I think this system that we have of you go decide and be whoever you want to be, um, it, it doesn't work, and it becomes a never-ending loop and a never-ending quest for validation. And I think the Scripture challenges us with that and points us to a better way. Um, there's, there's a better belief, and I understand why we do it. Maybe the, our family of origin was terrible, and so we don't want to be those people. I'm not like my mom. I'm not like my dad. I'm like those people. That, that could be true. And so, so culture comes along and says, then you go be whoever you want to be. And there's, there's a lot of anxiety that goes with that, of pressure to get that right and all sorts. Um, and, and I think there's, there's a, another option for us. We, we, looked in the, we looked at the book 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We looked at it last year. And um, I want to I go back to it just for a piece here in chapter 6. Paul writes this letter to the church and the church in Corinth sort of famously uh, struggled with a lot of things, particularly around sexuality, um, and, and there was a lot of issues kind of going there. And um, one of the things they would do is visit prostitutes in the temple as part of their worship of the pagan gods. This is what people in Corinth would do. Temple prostitutes who were hired to be there to service worshipers you know, in, in, in the temple, which is crazy. Um, and so... Um, Paul challenges these new Christians who are like, well, I'm a Christian now. I guess I shouldn't visit temple prostitutes. And Paul's like, yeah, let's talk about this. And so he, he challenged them in chapter 6. And listen to what he says. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Um, and uh, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Um, so he, he's, he's starting to say, he starts by saying, um, hey, I need you to follow this idea. Christ is in you, and he's a part of you, and when you go be with a prostitute, you are now uniting something, like the, you become one flesh with this other person. Like You need to think about what you're doing there's more going on in you than just well, my, my, all, the, all the my body, my choice arguments that people are making on all sides of issues these days. There's more going on than just that stuff. There, there's some deeper truths here. There, there's a connection that you have that is um, the, the image of God in you is, 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 is different. Um, and, and that's hard for our culture because our culture would probably say a lot of things that they would have said in, in, in Corinth, you know, kind of like you do you and you decide what makes you happy and you do all that kind of thing. Um, and, and Paul challenges that. Paul would have made maybe a, a very poor libertarian in, in this way. He challenges this. Listen to what he says in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
the justification for don't sleep around or don't pursue sex outside of the context that God has given is, is this. God is within you. When you became a follower of Jesus, you got baptized, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And, and, and don't just spread that around. Like, you need to be careful and, and be a steward of, what, of, of God being inside of you. Um, but it's, it, it, it's, it's deeper than that. He says, you are not your own. It's not, the decisions you make are not just about you and pleasing you now. You are not your own, he says. You were bought with a price. Christ died for your sins. And, has, and, and, and actually, you belong to God. His Spirit lives inside of you. Now, obviously, that's talking to people who are followers of Jesus, um, that Christ has purchased you. But the language of slavery in, there and in other places in the New Testament is uncomfortable to us because we always think of ownership and slavery in a negative light. Oh, this guy owned this guy. That's terrible. And historically, yes, that, that kind of slavery has been terrible. But Paul uses that language uh, here and in other places to say, no, you are, in fact, slaves to Christ. He owns you. You, you belong to him. And that's, that's uncomfortable for modern ears. And he reminds us that we are not enslaved just to people, but we end up being enslaved to sin and enslaved to things. And so we need to think of ourselves as, as being owned by the Lord. Now, Christians throughout history have tried to phrase that and think of that in different ways. Um, and actually, I want to point you to one. In 1563, uh, in Heidelberg, Germany, uh, a, a, like a priest or a bishop there came up with an idea of a way of teaching these truths to, to the common folk, to everybody. How do we say this in common language that people will understand and so that people will know this? And they developed a catechism. Now, a catechism, historically, and there's a bunch of them. If you grew up Catholic, you're probably twitching right now. You're like, oh, here comes the catechism. I don't think I memorized that. I'm in trouble again. They're going to hit me with the ruler, the nun. It's like there's a whole thing, right? I get it. Um, but catechisms, actually, the idea was this, this group of te- this, this set of teachings of the, the core truths about God and how do we get them in a way that's like memorable and, and we can teach them to children. And so the Heidelberg Catechism was developed in 50, 1563. And catechisms are usually done with a question and answer format. So it'll be like, uh, what is the chief end of man? Like, what is our purpose, right? And then the answer is like, the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him always, like with that kind of thing. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism, um, I, I like some parts of it. If you're familiar with Reformed theology, it's a little reformedy for me. That's a whole other conversation we can have another time. Um, but I, I love the way it starts. Here it is. Uh, the, the opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563, exactly what you wanted to learn this morning. Number one, what is your only comfort in life and death? That's the question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And people would ask this, and then you would have to give the answer that you, that you learned. That's interesting, right? Because if you said to anybody in this room right now, hey, what is your only comfort in life and death? We could probably generate a list. Like we could, I could like, we could shout out answers. I could put them on the board. Okay, my comfort in life and death. Well, um, I like wine. Um, relationships are nice. I love vacation. My career is comforting at times and satisfying. Some of my friendships are comfort. Like, if you want comforts in life, and, and I don't know about death, but at least in life, we can think of some and we can make a list. But I think the truth is, if we're going to really drill down into all those things, and if you look at people who have had all of those things to the nth degree, um, those things are, as 
as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, those things are meaningless eventually. They are vanity. There's going to be an emptiness that will come from having and acquiring things and relying on things to be this comfort for you. Um, and the truth is, um, eventually you're going to die, right? And none of those things can be taken with you. And in fact, a lot of the things that we would list as comforts in life can be taken from you. So you could say money is a comfort to me in life. And I get that. It buys air conditioning and transportation and food. And like, I, I understand that, but you, there could be an economic downturn and you lose your money. Like that could be taken away. Relationships are a comfort for me, but those can be taken away, right? My health is a comfort to me. That can be taken away. Like all these things that we might lean on as a source of comfort in life um, might not be able to hold us as we lean. Like I think that's true, and a lot of us have experienced that over the years. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, so many of those comforts can be taken away. So uh, what is a deeper answer to what is my only comfort in life and death? And the answer in the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563 says this, that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our only comfort in life and death. It's, it's this truth, going all the way back to 1 Corinthians, is this truth, we're not our own. We don't belong to us. And the pressure to belong to us is incredible in our culture. And the, and the pressure of, of forming our own image and our own identity, all of that is anxiety and inducing and, and, and leads to depression and a lot of other challenges. The comfort that we have in life and death is that we belong to Christ. This is a comfort in life, knowing that uh, all of my life is not about me and has to be for me and all of my ends and goals and dreams and hopes and all of that. It doesn't have to be that, that I live for him and I belong to him. That is a comfort in life. It's also a comfort in death because when I die, um, you know, ideally we all think we're going to die surrounded by loved ones quietly at home and all that, but in our culture, the way it happens is probably in a hospital bed with tubes and all sorts of things and all that happening. And when I die, um, I, I hope that there are people around me that I, uh, that I love. But at the end of the day, um, my comfort in death is going to be something greater than any relationship I've ever had or any job I ever had or, or, or wisdom I learned or fun times I had. My comfort in death is, is, is attached to something much greater um, much higher. And I want us to think about that because it's something that's coming for all of us. Um, this speaks to identity. Uh, we are not making ourselves in our own image with all the pressure and anxiety that brings. Um, we, are, are, we, uh, we may belong somewhere. We may have good families. We may have good relationship, money, and health, and all of those things. But our only comfort is that we are not our own, that we belong to Christ. We were bought with a price. So two implications of this, then we're done. Number one is this. You are made in God's image. You are made in God's image. I want you to fundamentally know this about you. If you're, if you're like in high school in here and you're about to hit college, they're going to tell you all sorts of wacky stuff there. And I want you to remember this. Burn this in your brain. You are made in God's image. The stamp of God is on you. And if you're a follower of him and you've given your life to Christ, you were bought with a price. You belong to, to someone um, you don't define you, and you don't have to strive for God's acceptance. He is pleased with you. He made you. He is pleased with you. But here's another key thing we need to remember about this. Not only are you are made in God's image, number two is this, and this may be harder. They are made in God's image. 
they are made in God's image. All of them, everyone in this room, everyone outside this room, um, everyone you've ever set eyes on, everybody you see on the news, everybody you interact with at school and at work, they are made in God's image. They may not know God, they may not be following him, but they have that stamp created in the image of God. They have that divine spark in them. And I want to point that out because there's a big temptation on our part to otherize people, to say those people are less than in some way. And what Christians have always believed and taught and understood, and this is why Christians started universities, and this is why Christians started hospitals and all that, what we've always believed is people are, have an inherent dignity and value in them because they belong to God. That's, that's who they are. They have that, that divine stamp, and, and we can't otherize them and treat them like they are sub or less. Uh, people do that. They do it with race. They do it with ethnicity. They do it with all sorts of things. They say, oh, well, those people are worth less than these people. We may not say that out loud, but you'll say, oh, those are just some slaves. Oh, those were just women. Oh, those are just black people. Oh, those are just white people. Oh, those are just insert group here that we otherize and say it's those people over there, and they're not my people, Right? We, we, we do this, and, we, and, when, and when we do that, we treat people as if they are made in, people who have been made in God's image, we treat them as they are less than that. And that is a subtle, satanic lie from the pits of hell, which was the other thing I thought about calling this series. But I thought disinformation campaign would be a little more subtle. Satanic lies from the pits of hell. We'll do another one next week. Um, the lie is that other people are less than us, that they, they, they don't matter as much. They have lower value. You see this in history, right? What happened in Rwanda in 1994? The, 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 the Tutsi minority were viewed by the majority as less than. They called them cockroaches. And they killed 800,000 of them. What happens? We see people as they don't have the image of God. They don't matter. We saw this in Nazi Germany, right? The Jews were less than. They didn't matter or if, if people had deformities or whatever. These people are less than. They don't have the image of God. They don't matter. And they may not use the image of God language, but this is what we're saying is a group is less than and they don't matter. You see it now. I mean, you see it in, in subtle ways in the way people treat people who are vaccinated or unvaccinated. Those people who are vaccinated don't have enough faith in God and they're, they're less than. They're, they, they, they're not strong believers. Those who are unvaccinated are dirty and all this stuff. Like there's all this stuff flying around and and it concerns me when we treat people like they are those people who are less than. And we otherize them. Um, and we've got to be very careful there. Uh, Christians need to lead the way in seeing people and advocating for seeing all people as being made in the image of God first. And whatever other identity they want to claim can, can be second. And that's hard because sometimes people are annoying. And they annoy you. And they annoy you with the way that they're different than you, right? They say dumb things, and they believe dumb things. And if they would only say the right things and believe the right things, they would believe and say things like you, which is the right way, which is why you believe it. Because you don't believe or say dumb things. Why would you do that? You believe the right things. I do too. I believe and say all the right things, right? And so people who don't do that are annoying sometimes. And I have to remind myself, these are people Jesus died for. These are people that have incredible worth and dignity and value. Even if they don't act like me, they don't sound like me, they don't talk like me, they don't vote like me, um, everybody is in, made in God's image.
And honestly, and this is going to be like, um, here's a couple things I could really burn it down with. Um, This is why Christians should be pro-life at all levels. Because a person's a person no matter how small. Thank you, Dr. Seuss. A person has inherent dignity and value because the image of God goes way deep. This is who we are from before, we, before we're born. Um, we, we, there, there's something going on there. And we need to be as pro-life as can be at all ages and all levels and all stages of life because we see the value, the image of God in people. This is why Christians uh, should be leading the fight against any form of racism. Because racism says this, this group is not, does not have the image of God or is less valuable than this group of people based on things like skin tone. Um, and Christians need to lead out on that and, and lead out in the fight against that. This is why um, Christians should be leading out in uh, uh, helping people who are experiencing homelessness or, or, or in extreme poverty. Uh, because we don't think people have less value because they have less money. That's not how it works. There's a, there's a dignity and value in all of us. And, and, and when people are in hard times, we need to come alongside and try to help. Um, why do I believe all those things? Because the Scripture teaches us this truth about who we are and where we came from. And Jesus told us in John 8 that if we'll know that truth and really hold to it and live it out, it's going to set us free. And I take him seriously in that. Our faith does not serve as merely a set of therapeutic principles to help individual people feel better about themselves. It actually defines what reality is and it holds us accountable to it. Now you may or may not believe that. Um, If you're a Christian, I I hope you do believe it and I hope this challenges you to double down on it in some ways. Um, If you're not a Christian, I just want you to consider the cost of what make yourself in your own image, what that's costing you. Because a lot of times the costs on things are hidden. But I think there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of uh, pain that people are living in under the pressure of, um, I have to to go figure this all out on my own. Um, All of us are, are doing our best, right? All of us are living according to the way we see the world and, and trying to live according to what we believe is true. And all of us are doing that inconsistently. Christians are not the only hypocrites in the world. Everybody's a hypocrite at times. But I, want, I really want to challenge you to think through the hidden cost of making yourself in your own image. And the truth is, if you, if you say, I want to reject that and I want to acknowledge the image of God in me and, and let him define who I am rather than me defining who I am, I want you to know up front, that's going to be hard too. Following Jesus, identifying as a Christian, and, and giving your life to Christ, that ain't no picnic. And, it, and it's probably going to become over time and at different times in culture, it's going to become less and less popular. So I just want you to know that what you're getting into there, um, that, there's a, that, that has its challenges too. But I, I want to challenge all of us. Let's root our identity in something that is true and something that is bigger than us and something that will last. Finally, Carl Jung, one of the most famous psychologists of all time, he says this, the world will ask you who you are, and if you don't know, the world will tell you. I think that's true. 
And I think what the world will tell you will be a lie from Satan, and it'll be part of the disinformation campaign. It will give you an answer, it just won't be an honest one. So um, I want us to be aware of the spiritual reality and think through that and, and recognize those lies when we see them so we can challenge them and live in accordance with truth. Let's pray. God, thank you for the awareness of the spiritual reality. And I, I, I pray you help us to live and move and act as if it were true. And, and God, if, if we're not used to that, if we're not used to thinking in terms of demonic or angelic forces or your hand at work or satanic work or anything like that, um, I pray that we are able to process that and access that and understand what is going on. There are some real spiritual forces at work in us and around us, and we need to fight those battles in, in the right way. Um, God, thank you for Jesus and how he sets truth and um, reveals truth to us and, and explains the world the way it, it really is. May we all live and strive to live in accordance with that reality. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I didn't read you all of the first answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I, I kind of want to read you the last part of it. Um, it it's, it's longer, and so you would have memorized this as the answer. And I want to do this instead of communion. We're going to take bread and juice that represents the body and blood of Christ. You can go out the left of your aisle and down the front and take that. The band will lead us in a song as we worship together. Um, and as we do, I want us to remember that Jesus, we are, we are not our own. We are bought with a price that Jesus paid for our sins. Um, the, the full answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful, Jesus, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Hello, listener. Thank you for tuning in to a Renew.org podcast. We want to invite you to join us this April in Indianapolis for our 2024 gathering, Courageous Renewal. We will feature speakers such as Anthony Walker, Tina Wilson, Bobby Harrington, Jonathan Storman, and so much more. Secure your spot now at renew.org slash events. That is renew.org slash events. Hope to see you there.